All right, we are now studying the last uh, three days of the life of Jesus, um, and it begins with the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and this relates to John chapter 18, verses 3 to 11. Uh, and uh, we're going to spend time on the arrest because the arrest is going to speak to us poignantly about the power of Jesus, who he is, uh, what he did to protect his disciples, and how he protects us in the same way. Um, and so uh, beginning with verse 3, so Judas came to the grove, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Wow. Would make a great movie, wouldn't it? Uh, what an amazing picture we see of our Lord and Savior here uh, in, this, in this moment uh, when, when evil comes face to face with the light, when darkness comes face to face with light. Uh, when, when evil men come to face the divine one, uh, the savior of this world. And it's so amazing when you see it. And John writes this, and he writes a, a part of this that's not in any of the other gospels. Uh, and I believe that John does this because John wants to show the power of the Lord Jesus, uh, even in his flesh, the power that he had. Uh, and so here he, we talk about the light, because that's who Jesus is. He's the light that was sent to this world. Uh, and the word light in reference to, to Jesus occurs six times uh, in nine verses. Uh, and now those of the darkness come in the darkness of night with lanterns and torches to seek him out. Isn't that amazing? To see the light of the world and they're going to see him. And so now they come with weapons. Now I told you based on my study that there was probably six, seven hundred, eight hundred uh, soldiers that came out to get Jesus, and they're armed. They are afraid of Jesus. We talked about this in, in last week, that there were a number of times when they tried to arrest Jesus, and it was, uh, they were unable to achieve it. God removed Jesus. He covered their eyes. Uh, and so time after time, they could not. Now, finally, they have the chance to get him, and they're afraid of him because they recognize that this man has some type of power. They know that just the week before he raised Lazarus from the dead. They know that. Uh, they know about the miracles. And yet you would think, knowing all that, that it would begin to dawn on him that this man is a prophet at least. And yet instead their eyes are blinded, their eyes are closed. And so they come armed with weapons. 
uh, talk uh, about a, an innocuous situation where men armed with weapons are going to confront God. I mean, I don't care what weapon you come with. It's of no consequence when it's facing God. Uh, and that's how blindsided these people are. Uh, they had a right to be worried because if Jesus chose not to be arrested, he could call down a battalion of, of angels and that arrest would never take place. These people would be struck dead. We know in the Old Testament, there was one angel that killed 180,000 people at night. One angel. All right. One of the, one of the uh, lessons. Uh, so we know the power that the angels have. We know that. And yet God is restrained. Jesus is restrained as he seeks to complete his mission. And so he willingly gives himself up. And I want to keep emphasizing this to you because you need to be able to give this to a world that is lost. Uh, Jesus is not a victim. He is not a victim. Jesus triumphs through tragedy. Uh, and I preached at a, at a funeral on Monday, and I said in that funeral that that's what separates us as Christians from the world. Yes, the world looks at death as a tragedy, and yes, death is sad, but we as Christians know death is the beginning of the rest of your life, all right? And we triumph over death through the tragedy of death. Uh, and Jesus showed us the way of how to do that, and so you see that here. And so willingly giving himself up to die for us. And so John is interested uh, in conveying the power of Jesus, uh, showing in this world the power that he had and what he restrained, power that he restrained. And, and so he writes this incident that none of the other gospel writers write. And it's rather interesting because as the, approach, the uh, soldiers approach, and knowing, and he knew exactly what they were coming for, uh, he initiates a discussion he approaches them. He doesn't sit there cowering amongst the grove. He walks out into their force. And he says to them in the first discussion, who is it you want? Now, do you think he didn't know who they wanted? <laughs> he knew who they wanted, but he wanted them to say it. He wanted the words to come out of their mouth. Who is it you want? Uh, and the most probable answer that they really should have given is you, right? You, you're here. We have Judas with us. He told us we, we want you. But notice how, <laughs> how it comes about. They don't say you. They don't say you. They say Jesus of Nazareth, all right? Uh, and, and in other words, open this colloquy between themselves and Jesus, which is exactly what God wanted. Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. Oh, boom. And now John writes this part that is not in the other episodes, not in the other gospels, uh, in which when those words come out of his mouth and he identifies himself as who he is, he uses the words, I am. It's part of the to be verbs. I am, and in saying that, it's exactly what God told Moses when Moses said, what should I tell the Jewish people who you are? And God, God said to Moses, very simply, you tell them I am that I am. Ooh, okay, I think that says it all, doesn't it? I am that I am. And so Jesus says here, I am he. And any, any religious Jew, 
anybody involved with Judaism would have understood that, that terminology and the way it was. And it says here that they were forced back by the words, by the words that he said, and fell to the ground. They were forced to the ground. I mean, I want you to think about this. It was like a, a pulse wave. Woo! And when he said that, and they were knocked to the ground. All right. Um, and it's amazing there, uh, as, you, as you think about this, uh, that, that the God would, would show that power through Jesus uh, and, and, and force them to the ground. And you see this. And apparently, they stayed on the ground until Jesus released them uh, by asking the question once again. Um, and, and it's so interesting, as you see that there, uh, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? <laughs> it's like they're on the ground. <laughs> who is it? Who is it that you want? I mean, really, you know, it's funny. Growing up in church, I never really studied this like this. And to see all of these issues going on here in the garden as the, as the power of God is being unleashed uh, against mankind. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you, he says, I told you already that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And don't you see that this was exactly what Jesus had intentioned? Jesus approached them, begins the colloquy himself because Jesus wants to protect his men. He doesn't want his disciples to be arrested. He presumes, and I believe it's probably accurate, that Jesus thought for sure they would arrest the disciples as well. Why not? If Jesus, they were arresting Jesus for criminal activity, why not arrest the men who were with him as well? And yet because of this, because Jesus stepped out like that, he protects his men. Now, it's interesting that you would have thought that these evil men who are about to lay hands on Jesus uh, would have recognized that for sure he was a holy man, for sure at, at least a prophet, um, and yet he comes with a calmness and a dignity, uh, even knowing that he's going to be arrested. And so I believe that all these thoughts are percolating in their minds as they come, which is why when Jesus said, I am he, that all these thoughts of, oh, this is a holy man, this is a prophet, the fear of all that just comes back on them and they, they're pushed to the ground. Uh, but uh, but it, it really only indicates a momentary pause. Uh, and I think it's a momentary pause because the bottom line was that God wanted to protect the disciples, and then God used all that to protect the disciples. Um, and so uh, Jesus uses his own great name. I am he. I am Jesus of Nazareth. And I believe that by saying I am he, effectively the Jews that came to arrest him, understood he was effectively saying, I am Jehovah. And I want you to look, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, the consequence of saying, I am Jehovah. What does the name of Jesus mean? Uh, and I see we see a perfect application here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Speaking about Jesus, and I, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father and the congregation said, amen, amen is right. All right. And so you see the power of the name of Jesus being unleashed here. 
Uh, every knee shall bow. And yes, effectively, God forces them to bow. They're down on the ground. The uh, impact of God through the name of Jesus Christ, overpowering through the sheer force of his presence. What an amazing, what an amazing picture this is. Uh, and so there's a strange blending here in the gospel, a strange blending, and I believe it's, it's appropriately done, uh, of opposites. Uh, and it's why Jesus did what he did even on this particular occasion. He was God manifest in flesh. So let's understand what that means. It means fully man, fully flesh, fully God. Okay? All right? But, but the elements of God were not revealed in the flesh. The full power of God was not revealed in the flesh. Only when God himself, the Father, allowed those uh, aspects of the divineness to be revealed, the, the power to be revealed, but fully God nonetheless. And so he's manifest, God manifest in flesh. Uh, and so Jesus would have it known that uh, as God, as well as man, he was about to die for our salvation, but he wasn't going involuntarily. You don't take God in involuntarily, you take God in only if God wants to be taken in. Don't you see the essence of this story? That's what Jesus is teaching here. You only take me in if I want to be taken in. And so that's the essence of, of understanding this story. Uh, and so um, if, if we are to have a sacrifice that's going to be sufficient for our sins, for all humanity, that sacrifice must be God alone on the cross. Merely a human being on the cross alone would not be enough to wash away our sins. It would have to be fully God on the cross, dying as a man, but fully as God on the cross in order for all of our sins to be, to be washed away. I mean, it's an amazing concept when you think about it. And so the second aspect of this display that Jesus shows over his enemies again, that his death is voluntary. It's not coerced. Nobody is forcing Jesus. Um, he could have walked away again as he did on numerous other occasions, but he chooses not to. He chooses to be taken in. And I told you that the reason he is choosing to be taken in is Passover is coming. At this point, it's only a day or so away, and, and God wants Jesus to be sacrificed on the cross on the eve of Passover so that any uh, religious Jew would hear the sheep buying in the, in the pens and would understand that animal sacrifice is taking place. And here is the one who says he was the sacrifice for all mankind for all time so that people would understand what was taking place. And let me tell you something else. There are Pharisees who will come to Christ. We know this in Acts. There are Pharisees and priests who will come to Christ. We don't focus on that too much, but they do. Uh, and so obviously there are people who, who this message has resonated with. Um, and, and, and so the other point of this and why Jesus is saying to them, who is it that you want? Jesus is making sure that those people who are involved in this activity of arresting him know who he is. They see the power of God. No one has an excuse. No one could say, I didn't know what, it was, what I was involved with. I didn't know that this was a divine man. I didn't know that this, was, this, that this man had the power of God. If you were there and you came to see Jesus and you saw the demeanor and the calmness and the dignity, and yet when he said, I am he, and the, and the group 
falls down, you had to recognize, oh, there's something here. There's something here. And that's part of what God wanted. There was no excuse for ignorance, none whatsoever. So this is an important thing for you to understand as, as we study this message. Uh, there's another thing that, that, that uh, is not mentioned in the other uh, synoptics, uh, and that is the second feature of the rest of Jesus that the other writers overlooked. And this is that he commands the officers and soldiers that since it is he that they had come to take, his disciples should be allowed to go their way. Uh, and we can read that in verse 8. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken previously, which we had spoken about, would be fulfilled. And those words say, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Uh, and the citation there is to John, uh, uh, let's see, I think that's John uh, 18. John 17, I have not lost one that you have given, given to me. So Jesus initiates the discussion in order to protect the disciples. Uh, and that's what he said in John 6, verse 39. Let's just turn to that just so we, we can tie the verses together. John 6, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose None of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So not only was he saying that the disciples would have eternal life. He was saying while he was here in this world, he would protect them. That no evil would befall them while he was here. After he left, well, obviously, we're all subject to the forces of evil in that sense. Look also at John 17, verse 12. Well, we'll start with 11. But I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Judas. Other than Judas, all of them were saved together. All of them were protected. And Jesus made sure of that even at this most difficult moment. And what a lesson that is for us today. And I want to spend time to tell you how much Jesus loves you. If Jesus, at the very moment that he is going to suffer death, at the very moment that he is going to give himself up to be persecuted uh, and to suffer the worst indignities that man could put on, on, a, on a person, and knowing that he's going to be put on a cross, if Jesus could still be mindful of us, worried about us, protected about us, even at that moment, what a gracious moment that is for our Lord and Savior. You should be uplifted right now, recognizing that no matter what you suffer, no matter what you go through, Jesus is going to protect you. His grace is going to surround you. His blood will be over you. He will be with you. There will be no darkness in your life that he will not walk with you. Because look what he did at the very garden, at the very moment where evil comes face to face with the light of this world. And so he protects his own. He protects his own and makes that promise to God and thanks him. Uh, and there's a number of verses 
that support this very proposition uh, that God, that tell us what God is able to do for his people. Listen, here's the deal. When you give yourself over to God, when you submit to God, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior, God makes a covenantal promise for you. He says, I will protect you. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and called according to his purpose. All things. Now, we can't put our arms around what God's definition of good is. Because if we, when we define it in terms of our worldly vision, it doesn't often seem good. You go to see people who are dying. It's hard to say this is goodness. But you, have, you, you are looking through a microscope at a, at a tiny slice of time when God looks at the eternal panoply of this world. He looks at everything. And recognizing that this is just some microscopic event, you'll be with him for billions upon billions of years until this entire universe is cratered. Uh, and so when you, when you will step back and reflect the way God looks at things, he's promised to take care of you. And I believe him. And you should believe him. So that means not only is he going to take care of you, wrap you in his arms, bring you to heaven, but he's also going to take care of you now. He's going to be with you. He's going to give you everything you need, not everything you want, but everything that you need. He will be with you. He will affirm you. And you, as we bow in submission to him, and this is the key, as we say, Lord, your will in my life, help me, Lord, to accept your will. Help me to bow to your will. And as you do this, as you make those prayers and you bow to him, God lifts you up. He lifts you up. Uh, and you have the assurance that he's with you, that nothing, that nothing befalls you that's not within the perfect will of God. Look, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and speaking of Jesus. Therefore, he, being Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He constantly intercedes for you. Every prayer that we make, every sigh that we make, every moment that we look up to heaven and we pray, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding and praying for you. What an amazing picture that is. Jesus is praying for you? Jesus is praying for me? Yes. That's the promise of this. And he proved it at the Garden of Gethsemane. Because most anybody else who would be arrested knowing what's going on isn't going to be worried about the 11 other guys that he knows are going to take off. But he still worries about them. He still loves them. What a picture this is for us. Uh, I mean, verse, verse 26 following that says, Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints his high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Wow, what, what, powerful, what a powerful verse speaking about Jesus Christ as the eternal intercessor, God himself staying there at the throne, praying for you. So here's the point. I know many of you are going through difficult, dark times. Uh, 
whether it's financial or whether it's physical, as we get older, we're all suffering in some aspect uh, in our bodies. All of us, every day we get different diagnoses and it's hard. Sometimes you get depressed, but here's the thing. We have Jesus on our side. He walks with you. Nothing is going to come into your life that is not within the will of God. I repeat that. Nothing is going to come into your life that is not within the permissive will of God. Well, somebody will say, yeah, but I'm dying. Well, the only way you get to heaven is you got to leave this world. I don't mean to be harsh. I don't mean to be harsh because we all want to go to heaven. No, you don't really want to die. You understand? But here's the thing. He will be with you even through death, even through those darkest days, even when it seems like there's no light at the tunnel, but he will fill your life with his life. He will be with you. Don't ever forget what you see going on here in the garden at that very moment when they came to wipe him out and punish him and put him through the greatest persecution and suffering the world would ever see. Uh, it's extraordinary when you see what God has done for us, that God has given us this life preserver, not just on the other side. This isn't a life preserver to cross over to heaven. It's a life preserver for here. This is one of the things that I think we as Christians sometimes don't understand. We, we embrace Jesus for the love he gives us here. This is how we walk in this world with the grace and hope in Jesus Christ. This is how we can walk into and walk out of a doctor's office. This is how we can face tough diagnosis. This is how we can look at our stock portfolios after it's crashed. Because we know and believe that he is in control of our lives. Can I get an amen on that? I want to make sure you understand this. I don't want to make sure that every person in this room understands exactly how great the love of Jesus Christ is and the love of the Father. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. And of this gospel, this is Paul speaking now, and of this gospel I was appointed a herald, and an apostle and a teacher. And I think that's one of the things that we understand that when God speaks to his people, he speaks to his people through appointed teachers who speak with the power of the Holy spirit, that it's not their words that they're giving you, but it's the words of the scripture of the Bible through the Holy spirit. And by the way, if you go and listen to somebody and you're watching somebody on television who will start with a sermon in which he gives you 12 ways to do this, Six ways to achieve that. And all you hear are opinions of the pastor. Get up and walk out. All right? Because you're not getting the Holy Spirit divine message of God. You are getting an individual's opinion and perspective. And frankly, my opinions are worthless. My opinions are worthless. But when I have the Holy Spirit speaking through me, through the words of God, and I'm using scripture, well, then you better listen because God is giving us his word. And so you see this here, verse 12. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Oh, Lord, Jesus, I'm suffering right now. Here's Paul writing this, the greatest missionary evangelist that the world would ever see, 
a man who most Western historians put in the top five most important people in the history of Western civilization. And he is telling you, after all this time of preaching and speaking God's word, traveling the world for God, he is telling you that I am suffering right now. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I am sick. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to be beheaded. And you see all this. And yet, what does he say? Uh, yet I am not ashamed. I am not, because I know, I know, I know. And that's what I pray for us, that you know. That's that knowledge, that deep confirming knowledge in your heart. It's not in your head. It's not in your head. It's in your heart. I know, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What have you entrusted him to that day? Your very spirit and soul. That's what you've entrusted to Jesus. You've entrusted him your life. You've trusted him with everything. And so when you entrust him with everything, he answers. It's a covenantal promise. He will not abandon you. Think of that garden. Think of that dark day. Think of the hundreds of soldiers coming out with all kinds of weapons. And there's Jesus is without a single weapon without anything, and yet he stands up in front of them. Look also at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We'll start with 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, and that he might make atonement for sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see the very incarnation of Jesus Christ as a human being gave him for all eternity, even though we didn't need it, but you needed in order to see it and know who he is, gave him for all eternity, the perspective of what it is to be human, to hurt, to have emotional pain, to be depressed, to not being able sometimes to get up out of bed. He's been there. He's walked it. He's done it. Don't ever forget that Jesus was fully human. All right. You think he got up every day and was whistling a happy tune? The Bible tells us he was a man of sorrows. He was a man of sorrows. What does it mean to be a man of sorrows? It means I'm a man who's on a mission. I know where this mission ends. I know what I'm going to suffer. I know the very essence that God has called me to do, that the people I have been called to preach to, the sons of Israel will reject me. They will reject me. How do you like that? Think that's an uplifting message? The whole scripture points so this is the Messiah, and yet the very people he's called to save will reject him. Well, that's the point that God wants you to know. When you're down, when you're hurting, when you don't think there's a better update, Jesus walked in your shoes before you had shoes. He walked where you are. He loves you. And when you understand and you see this picture at the garden, and that's why this garden picture resonates with me, that God, fully flesh, Fully man and yet fully God will face seven or 800 guards with weapons. And what's his mindset? I'm going to protect the 11 men. I'm going to fulfill the promise I made to God. I will protect those he gave to me. And you are the ones he gave to God. You are the ones. 
and he will protect you just as he protected them. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these words. Lord, I thank you for this picture of what you did for us, Lord, so poignantly told at this moment. Father, we bow to you in submission. And thank you, Father, that you have loved us so much that you have given us Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Jesus, for this great sacrifice that becomes more relevant in our lives every day that we walk in this world. Lord, I ask you that this lesson grow in our heart and resonates with us each day this week as we come closer to you in every way. And help us, Father, to bring this message to a lost world so that they understand exactly what it is that we have because we are with you. Protect our people, be with them this week, and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Amen.